Oh, thanks for that reading, Beth. Uh, if you are new or visiting tonight, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us if you are new, and we hope you get to meet lots of people afterwards tonight. We're starting, as you've heard from Mark, our series uh, on Luke, which will run through this first term, and we're just looking at these three chapters, Luke 10 to 12, but there's a lot in them. So let me pray as we come to that first passage that's just been read and ask that God will help us as we come to his word tonight. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather together freely uh, to hear your voice through your word, which is living and active. And we pray that you might be at work in our hearts and minds tonight, that we may hear your voice clearly as your spirit does its work of applying it to our lives. Uh, help us to hear and respond, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was just over a week ago that uh, many Aussies were celebrating Australia Day, of course, on January 26. Uh, lots of people went to various events and even to fireworks that night all around, including in Wollongong. But of course, at the same time, Invasion Day rallies were happening around Australia and indeed at all of our capital cities. The one that was held in Sydney attracted somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people. And of course, the focus in the last few years on the Invasion Day rallies is about changing of the date. But actually, at the rallies themselves, they tend to raise a whole lot of other issues that relate to Aboriginal people in Australia. For example, one of the focus um, points was about the incarceration rates of Aboriginal people. Um, as of last year, in the Northern Territory at least, the only children and youth in incarceration were Indigenous ones. And then they also raised another big question of a second stolen generation. You see, there was legislation introduced in this past year in New South Wales that allowed for uh, children to be removed and uh, adopted without full parental consent, and protesters saw that as unfairly targeting uh, Indigenous people. Since Kevin Rudd's apology uh, in 2008, uh, which offered a sorry to the stolen generation, there's apparently been a 400% increase in Indigenous children being taken from their families. An Aboriginal family is 10 times more likely to see their child or grandchild uh, removed by the Department of Family and Community Services. And that's largely because of violence within the family situation, often aided by substance abuse. And actually, uh, just a week ago, there was an article in the Australian newspaper written by an Aboriginal woman talking about the high levels of violence and calling for change in their culture in order to protect women and children. Well, when asked about all these Invasion Day rallies and their growth around the country, uh, the Prime Minister commented that, well, things were pretty hard for those that sailed into Sydney Heads in 1788 as well, reflecting on his own convict background. And he tweeted um, a video on Australia Day saying, we must come together on January 26. Now, the issues for Aboriginals in Australia are complex, and I'm not really wanting to offer a social commentary in a couple of minutes, but I raise all of that to say the issues now uh, mean that when we come to Australia Day, it's quite a divisive moment for many people today. The messaging around it is not so clear. It's highlighting a growing divide between Aboriginal Australia and everybody else. Because messages that bring division, that get differing responses, are not new in our world. Uh, we've had them since time began. And as we come to our passage in Luke 10 tonight, we actually see that the message that 
Christ will send out his disciples to share will bring a great divide also. As we'll unpack over the next 10 weeks, this is actually a continuing theme in Luke 10 to 12. Even more strikingly, as we'll see in a few weeks' time, when Jesus gets to speaking to a group in Luke 12, he says, as I speak, there will be divisions even within families. Father will be against son, mother against daughter. And so the question I want us to consider tonight is this. Why will Christ's message divide people? Why will Christ's message bring such division? If Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, why is it that the message of Jesus will see diametrically opposed positions? Well, the first answer, the first of three answers to that question is this tonight. Because some will accept the message and others reject it. Because some will accept it and others will reject it. Look at how that plays out in the passage, particularly from verses 8 to 12 again. Jesus speaking says, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those there who are ill and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even in the dust of your town we will wipe off our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, before we consider why Christ's message is so divisive and the different responses in that section, we need to do a little recap in Luke's gospel. Jumping back in after doing it over the past two years, it's good to think about what happened in Luke chapters 1 to 9. And so, of course, Luke 1 and 2 is the birth narrative, talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And then chapters 3 to 9, you have a focus on the identity of Jesus. The question that keeps coming up as he teaches like no one has taught, as he performs miracles that no one has seen, is who is this man? Who is it that is standing before us? And that eventually reaches a climax towards the end of chapter 9, where Jesus himself says to his own disciples, the 12, who do you say I am? And Peter, as often as the leader speaking on behalf of the disciples, says, God's Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the promised Christ, the chosen, the anointed one, the king that would bring salvation. And as we hear those words from his lips, Jesus is very quick to jump in at the end of that section and say, yes, and the salvation that I'm going to bring involves me going to Jerusalem to lay down my life. That that salvation will be offered through crucifixion to the shock of his disciples as they heard those words. And from that moment on, he's headed for Jerusalem. If the first nine chapters were about his identity being made clear, then from chapters 10 to 19, he's making a somewhat slow and convoluted passage from that point to Jerusalem where he will lay down his life for the purpose that he's come for. And so this section in chapters 10 to 19 is often called the travel narrative. And that's what we're getting the start of this term as we do 10 to 12. As Jesus makes this journey, um, heading, setting himself, determined to head to Jerusalem and to what awaits there. But at the end of chapter 9, see, as Jesus' identity is made clear uh, by his disciples, there's this sense that there'll be great opposition even then. Jesus is making it clear right from that point, as he'd already seen at moments along the road to then, that there would be many who would reject him. There'll be many who won't see him as the Christ. 
It may be that his disciples recognise him as the Messiah, but many others will say, no, thank you, you're not who we're looking for. And there'll be great opposition to him. And so as we get to this section in chapter 10, this theme is reinforced. Notice that like the sending out of the 12 to every town at the start of chapter 9, now at the start of chapter 10, it's the sending out of the 72 disciples. And Jesus makes it very clear from verse 1 onwards that there's going to be a mixed reaction. Notice as he speaks, verse 6, and then in verses 10 and 11, that there'll be those who reject, who won't be interested as you share the message that I've given you. In fact, it's going to be dangerous. Verse 3, he talks about them being lambs amongst wolves, which doesn't sound very good for the 72 going out, that there'll be danger. And so he gives them a protocol of how to deal with the mixed reactions they'll receive in the various towns they go to. They're going ahead of him and Jesus will follow on. And so it's like they're heralding his message, um, going before him as the preliminary. But it does lead to the question, doesn't it, what is this message that he's given them to share as they go around these towns? It will be so divisive. Why is it that these people are going to speak to those they've known throughout this um, Jewish area of the north will be rejected? Well, the expression in verses 9 and 11 is the key, isn't it? We simply get this short summary, the kingdom of God has come near. And it's a phrase that's announcing the arrival of God's kingdom because its king has now come. Jesus is the Christ who was promised. And so he comes to announce that his kingdom is near. And with that comes a judgment. It was always the expectation throughout the Old Testament that when the Christ came, not only would he be the one that ushered in God's kingdom, but that meant that a judgment would follow, that people needed to get their house in order, that they needed to repent and turn back to God. And of course, that is the message too, as his disciples go out to share. It's not um, fully unveiled for us here in what they were saying. We just get this short clipped summary. And there's no sense either that the fullness of the kingdom will have been completed at this time. Jesus would teach and had already taught that he was going to die and then rise again, but then he would be returning a second time and then he would come in all his power and glory and the fullness of the kingdom would be brought in. But there's this foretaste of it in the present because the judgment that was to come would be beginning now as people made their decision about Christ. Are they for him? Are they against him? The decision of the end can be seen in the present as people respond to the Christ who has come. And so his message from the start through these disciples and himself as he speaks and preaches to the crowds is the kingdom is near and therefore repent and believe the good news. Be prepared for your king. And as we get to verses 12 to 15, Jesus speaks very strongly, doesn't he, about the judgment that's to come. I mean, he's been ministering for a year or so at this point in the northern part, Galilee, where he's grown up in the town of Nazareth. He has gone to cities like Capernaum often. Many of his miracles and his teaching was in that place. But now he speaks about how Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum Will be, it'll be worse for them on the judgment day than wicked cities that were proverbial in the Jewish mind like Tyre and Sidon. Now, we know them as sort of in the area that's Lebanon today. But how can it be that the Jewish Messiah speaking uh, to his disciples, telling them about the judgment that will fall on those that reject the message, that it'd be better to be living in Tyre and Sidon than to be one of these that had the experience of hearing Christ? But the point is this. They did not respond in repentance. 
For all that they'd seen in his teaching and in his miracles, there was no response of repentance in those towns. And so he says in verse 15, they will go down to the depths or Hades. And if those references weren't enough, then there's the mention of Sodom, which was proverbial for its wickedness in Genesis. It would be better to be Sodom on the day of judgment than these towns that have had so much opportunity to hear the good news of the kingdom and had not believed. Well, what are we to make of all of that as we think about our own setting today, 20 centuries down the road? Well, I think there's a key verse, verse 16, as we think about these first disciples that went out and what it might mean for us as we think about this mission of the 72. Notice in verse 16, Jesus says to this large group of disciples, whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. You notice this unbreakable link that Jesus is making between himself and his disciples who carry his message. He's commissioned them in such a way that they represent him. Uh, for these Joe Average Christians, as we might see them, who are going out to all the towns, for those towns to reject them and the message of the kingdom being near is to reject Christ himself. Now it's true, the 72 had a particular historic role. They are heralding the ushering in of the kingdom for the first time. They're somewhat different from ourselves at this point today. But there is also a parallel with ourselves too. This principle of being Christ's ambassadors, sharing his message that they might respond it's something that gets taken up a number of times in the New Testament beyond Christ's death and resurrection. Have a look at the, what the Apostle Paul says in what, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as we read those words, we realise that sharing the good news, sharing the gospel with unbelievers is not something just for the super zealous Christians or maybe those crazy missionaries that we commission and send overseas to the hardest points. No, it's for everyone. I mean, if it were a case that was just for a chosen few, then what does it say about the rest that are also supposed to be ambassadors? It'd be like saying that a nation's ambassador or a member of a country's security intelligence didn't have to look after the interests of their country, that they could go and pursue some other kingdom's interests rather than the one they represented. I mean, arguably, the biggest security scandal of the 20th century was the so-called Cambridge Five spy ring. These were five guys that rose to prominence in MI5, held very important positions during World War II. But they had been reached by the Russians in the 1930s, and they were traitors. And throughout the war, they would give away lots of sensitive documents to the Russians rather than looking after the British establishment that they represented. Anthony Blunt is perhaps the most famous of the five, and his um, involvement in his memoirs were made public in 2009, uh, 26 years after his death. He was a guy that was part of MI5, but he was also the art surveyor of the palace. 
He was a close friend of the queen. He regularly met with her. The queen was so oblivious to what he was doing, she even knighted him. He was such a brilliant servant and ambassador of her empire. And all the while, he was selling them traitor, giving away all their best secrets. Surely such a representative, one who fails not only to represent the nation but works against it, is a shameful ambassador. Well, we represent Jesus if we've come to our faith in him. And the result will be that we owe our allegiance to him, that we must serve him. We can't serve some pitiful earthly kingdom that we're looking after rather than thinking about what he has called us to do. And the result will be too that we start looking at the world through God's lens. And so rather than matching up and judging people by the career they have or the suburb they live in or the wealth they have or their ethnic background, we will look out at the world and we will see only two categories, as God does. There are those who have been reconciled to him through his son, the Lord Jesus, and there are those who have not. And the result should be that we're spurred on to share the message. The stakes are so high, the consequences are eternal. And this is why we need to be ambassadors and share the message, to be on mission, just as the 72 were. That brings me to a second answer to the question of why Christ's message is divisive. Not only will be those, are we promised, that will reject it, while there'll be some that accept, but secondly and importantly, there is a huge spiritual battle going on. Christ's message is divisive because there is a spiritual battle going on. Have a look again and get verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's an interesting section, isn't it? Verses 17 and 18 picture the mission of the 72 as evidence of Satan's fall. The devil's descent from above, his loss of power is evident, Jesus says, from what has taken place in their brief mission. How so? Well, the fall of Satan is an allusion to the imagery of Isaiah 14, verse 12, where the prophet states, How you have fallen from heaven, you have been cast down to the earth. You see, later in Luke 11, in the very next chapter, Jesus is going to speak in verses 20 to 23 about how his public ministry is actually showing that he is the stronger one, that he will enter the strong man's house, Satan, and he will plunder his domain because he is stronger. He will be gathering his people for himself despite the wiles of the devil. There's a sense as Jesus starts his public ministry that the power to deliver from Satan's influence has started to work itself out in history. And the deeds of his disciples in this short-term mission show that the evil forces cannot resist Christ's authority. Christ has given them authority to act and they are seeing his power as they go about and even the spirits respond. In the name of Jesus, even demons submitted to the 72 as they went from town to town. 
And no doubt if you were part of that mission, it would have been fairly exciting to contemplate that power that you had, and maybe that could quickly go to your head. And so notice how Jesus quickly redirects them in verse 20 and says, look, you should not be rejoicing that the evil spirits submit to you. You should be rejoicing that your names are written in the book of life. And that is true for not only that first generation, but every generation of believers since. The most important thing is that we are in right standing with God. The book of life is commented on a number of times in Scripture because it's God's record of those who will be acquitted on the day of judgment, who stand in a right place with him because of their trust in Christ who has paid for their debt. And so the book of life is the thing, our salvation is the thing that we should be excited about. But this conversation between Jesus and the disciples is interesting, isn't it? Because it raises the whole point that there's this huge spiritual battle going on on planet Earth. While God is gathering people from every nation, Satan is seeking to scatter, to bring down. That is his role, to divert people from the truth, from the good news to try and thwart, though it's not possible, God's plans to gather a people. See, Jesus has already taught his disciples in the parable of the sower just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke 8 that the devil is at work. Have a look at these verses with me. Luke 8, verses 11 and 12. Here's Jesus explaining the parable of the sower to his disciples, and this is how it begins. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So if you haven't worked it out yet, humanity has an enemy. You have an enemy. You may think you're entirely lovable and everybody likes you, but you have an enemy in Satan that's determined to bring you down, to move you away from God's plans in this world. The Apostle Peter speaks elsewhere of the devil being like a lion prowling around, looking for somebody to devour, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. And so we need to be aware that this is the devil's work, that he's actively working to stop people receiving the good news of the kingdom. And perhaps such a reason for people not responding to the message makes you concerned in a new way, perhaps even fearful. The Bible makes it very clear that we have nothing to fear in Satan. His defeat has already taken place at the cross. Jesus would speak about it a number of times and then the writers of the New Testament reflect on it. We saw in fourth term last year, the Apostle Paul speaking in Colossians 2.15, that Jesus has overcome the powers and authorities through his death on the cross he has made a public spectacle of them in his triumph over them. And so at the cross, Jesus not only defeats your sin and its wages, which are death, but he also defeats your accuser, the devil, so that his end is already determined. The great decisive battle has been won. And so in the meantime, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, uh, the devil continues to roam around. He has limited power to seek to pull down and to take people away from God's truth until Christ returns and banishes him forever. But we need to know the decisive battle has been won. 
and the age in which we're living as we approach it and we see the mixed reactions to the message of the gospel. In May of 1944, um, the Western Allies were gearing up for the most important, most decisive battle of World War II. They'd been planning for it for 12 months already at that point. They were going to make their crossing in the English Channel, land in France and start their invasion and hopefully victory over France and then take back Europe from German enemies and Nazi forces. And it was decided that the landings would be on the long sloping beaches of Normandy and their main gain was that they had the element of surprise. They'd been sowing misinformation for months to the German leaders that their landing would be in Calais, which was the shortest, narrowest distance across the English Channel. Instead, they were heading for Normandy and they had it all set out to land on the 5th of June, 1944. But there was shocking weather on the English Channel that day and they were forced to postpone their landing for 24 hours. And when there was a forecast of even a brief window on the 6th of June, they decided they'd go ahead. And by nightfall of that day, 175,000 troops and 50,000 vehicles had been landed in Normandy, and it was the beginning of the end of World War II. The Germans were unprepared and they took ground quickly. And they would take back France and soon Europe. You see, it was the moment. There was going to be lots of fighting in the months to come. There'd be a long time before everything was cleared up. But it was that decisive moment that determined the end point. And you see, what we see in the 72 being sent out is the first moments of Christ's triumph, if you like, over Satan and his demonic forces, much like D-Day for the Allies in World War II. And our sharing of the good news today is in the midst of this ongoing spiritual battle. But it's a battle that has been won. We know Satan's end already. And that should prepare us for the divided response that we will see. But we should step forward in courageous stance, ready, knowing that the end is near and that we're going to share the good news for all those that will respond. And that brings us to a third and final answer to our question. Why is it that Christ's message will divide people? Well, not only because some will reject it, not only because the devil is at work to stop people from responding, but thirdly, because God's revelation is not grasped by all. God's revelation will not be grasped by all people. Have a look again, verses 21 and 22, as Jesus concludes this section. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, this concluding section makes it clear that the 72 who went out on their mission only understood the message of the kingdom, of the good news that people needed to respond to because God had opened their eyes and minds that they might understand it. It wasn't because they were brilliantly intelligent. You know, some people got it because they were smart and others didn't because they just couldn't see it. No, Jesus makes it very clear here that they were not the learned, they were not the wise. In fact, he calls them infants, little children. And it's a theme that runs through the New Testament. Believers are not pictured 
as the superintelligent. 1 Corinthians 1. You know, it's not the wise and the learned of the world. God does these things to shame those who are so, but rather those that simply trust. But their eyes have been opened to the good news by Christ. Not only was the submission of the demons due to Jesus giving them authority, but their grasp of the, of the message is not primarily due to the exercise of their own brilliant minds. Now, Jesus is not saying that the disciples were just robots who were just sort of manipulated to go out. These were people who went out from town to town through this northern area of Galilee. They were sharing the message of the kingdom. They were facing the varying reactions that came day by day. Don't get me wrong. But we need to understand that their activity springs from an understanding which God has revealed to them. Notice in verse 21, God the Father hides or he reveals the truth of the arrival of the kingdom, and because that is his will. How does Jesus respond to that veiling and unveiling? Does he say, oh, well, that's, that's a bit tricky? No, he's joyful and he praises his Father in heaven because this is how God pleases to unfold his revelation. And so in verse 22, we learn that not only the Father reveals the truth about Jesus, his Son, but Christ also reveals the Father. And that highlights something of the relationship within the Trinity between the Father and the Son. But it's also highlighting this chain of revelation for us. The Father revealing himself through the Son, the Son revealing himself through his disciples who take his message to the people. And so this chain of Christ's message going out through those who have responded to him. I guess I've got to say to you as a result, if you have understood the arrival of God's kingdom in the coming of Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection being the good news, if that's something you've responded to and you've understood Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you are so privileged. We need to give thanks to God that he has opened our eyes, that he's removed the scales so that we might see, we might unblock our ears so that we might hear. We should be thankful and praise God for revealing himself so clearly to us in the person of his son. And see, it was not only that some people in Jesus' day did not understand or receive God's revelation. Sometimes whole generations had waited for this moment and they just never got to hear or see this moment. Jesus refers to this, doesn't he, in verses 23 and 24, that kings and prophets had longed for this moment. They had longed to see this coming Christ that they had been waiting for centuries for, but they never saw the day in their lifetime. The Apostle Peter says elsewhere in his first letter, even angels long to look into these things. How privileged are we to sit this side 2,000 years beyond the cross, to be able to look back on this long-awaited victory. What's it like to wait a long time for a victory? Well, let me give you a couple of flippant uh, sporting examples. Maybe some of you here are from the Shire. There's a lot of people that come down to Wollongong to study. Um, some of you may know about the rugby league, the NRL, the Cronulla Sharks. It took them 50 years to win a premiership. 50 years. They eventually got there in 2016. Many people believed it would never happen. They'd made it to a number of grand finals. They'd lost all of them. There was even a saying that had become famous through a Parramatta coach, Jack Gibson, some years before, and he said, look, waiting for the Cronulla Sharks to win a premiership is like leaving 
the light on on your porch, hoping that Harold Holt will come home. It's not going to happen, people. And so when Paul Gallen, the captain of the Cronulla Sharks, got to stand up and pick up the summons probe and trophy and hold it up, the first words he said were, all of you in the Shire, you can go and turn off your porch light. We're coming home with the trophy tonight. 50 years in the making. Or what about if you follow a little bit of cricket? Uh, The Sri Lankans are here at the moment. Um, They're not doing so well in Canberra. They haven't been doing well most of the times when they've come over. They've been coming here since 1987 for over 30 years, and they've got some great players. They've beaten us lots of times in their home country, but they have never once beaten us in Australia over 30 years. I'm not saying they've never won a series. They've never won a single match, not one, in 30 years. One day it'll happen, I'm sure, but it's not going to be this year. It'll be maybe in another four or five years when they come back. But some people wait a long time to see that moment of victory when the rain, when the kingdom comes in that they've been longing to see. And in verses 23 and 24, Jesus is reminding the gathered disciples how privileged they are to witness this moment of Jesus and the dawning of the kingdom of God. This was something that so many others had longed to see. Well, as we reflect on all of this this evening, I want to come back to the question that we started with. We started with the question, why will Christ's message be divisive? Why will the message of Jesus bring a great divide in people? Well, we've seen at least three reasons from our passage tonight. Firstly, because there will always be those that accept it and those that reject it. Jesus doesn't promise a warm welcome from everyone. But secondly, there is a great spiritual battle going on on planet Earth. The devil is at work seeking to take people away, distract them from the truth about Jesus. And thirdly, God's revelation is not grasped by all people. Not everyone will have the scales removed from their eyes so that they might see clearly the salvation that is offered in Jesus who came and bore our sin on the cross. For so many, he will just be just another religious zealot who died, killed by the Romans, of no importance, easily dismissed. Gee, we're not even sure if he actually lived. But if you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, then you've come to a point because Jesus has made it clear to you and God has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. And as you think about the privileged position you're in and the opportunity you have to be an ambassador like those 72, you're not to be put off by these points that we've just considered tonight, the fact that not everyone will receive you warmly. In fact, if you believe that you are trusting in a sovereign God who is over all things in his universe, then these truths should actually spur you to continue to share. Yes, there'll be those who reject, but you know that God has his people that will respond and receive it. Yes, you know that the devil is at work seeking to take away the seed of his word before people can receive it. But you know also that God is more powerful and the devil has been defeated by Christ at the cross. And so you'll continue to share because there'll be those that respond. And yes, maybe God's revelation will not be understood by all. Their eyes will not be open to the truth. But God is continuing to work in his world. And eyes are being opened every day. And who knows but that that next person you speak to is one in which they will receive the good news of Christ. We're his ambassadors. We're to keep going out with the good news. 
We're not to be put off by the possibilities of a negative reaction. We know that there'll be those that receive it and those that don't. The question is whether you're going to wander around slinking in the shadows the rest of your life like Anthony Blunt, not really representing the king that you claim to follow, serving some other kingdom that's perhaps your earthly one that you're building, or will you be sold out for the one that has won you forgiveness, that's won you eternal protection and salvation? A lot is at stake for each and every person. And we're called to share it so that many more may be drawn into God's kingdom as he works to draw people to himself through faith in his son. Will you pray with me? Let's pray that we might do that.